Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavner here on TRSI. I'm here today with my friend and colleague Michael Dwyer. Today is Sunday, the uh, 3rd of the new year, the glorious new year. Michael, how have you been? Since Friday, I've been cold and disappointed. So you haven't mastered the universe in the last two days? No, but you know, I'm hopeful. I think I'm going to use this lockdown to master the universe. They tell me that hope is the last thing to go. That's what they always say, but I don't know. I think it's probably your knees. It's definitely not your hips. No, no, your hips go early. So today we will be talking about uh, another shooting from the guards. I say another shooting from the guards, as this this happens regularly, whereas it doesn't. It's not common for the guards to shoot people. Yes. So the shooting of George Ninkencho. Ninkencho? I believe is the actual pronunciation. In, or Inkensho. I don't know. Every time I try and pronounce it, I just think Russian and I start going in a weird direction. Yeah, there's a kind of a Russian-y sound to it or it's the Chenko kind of thing, isn't it? I think I have a feeling that he was a char- there was a character. Wasn't there a character in one of, in Gorky Park called Inchenko or Chenko or something? Did he also get shot by the police? Uh, no, I think he was the police. Although he may have been shot by the police. If it was a different character, it depends on the character. Some people were shot by the police. Just to, to lay out the, the basics of what happened here, although I assume you're all aware of it. This is from the the guards' formal release uh, after the shooting. At approximately 2.15pm today, this was the 30th of December, Gartha responded to reports of a public order incident involving a male in his late 20s armed with a knife at Hartstown Shopping Centre. During an incident in the Eurospar business premises in that shopping centre, a male member of staff received facial injuries and is currently receiving medical attention in Conley Memorial Hospital. Subsequently, a second public order incident was reported at the post office in that shopping centre. Uniform, unarmed Gardaí responded to the scene and observed a male in possession of a knife. The male continu- continued to threaten members of the public and unarmed Gardaí with the knife. Gardaí followed the male on foot and in vehicles from the Hartston shopping centre towards his home. During this period, Gardaí were engaging with the male and encouraging him to drop the weapon. Members of the armed support unit uh, arrived at the scene. The armed support unit were also threatened with a knife and implemented a graduated response where the use of less lethal force options, tasers and um, pepper spray, was initially administered in an effect to resolve the incident. The non-lethal or the less lethal use of force options were unsuccessful. At approximately 12.35pm, a member of the armed support unit discharged a number of shots from his official firearm, shooting the male. He was treated at the scene by Garda, armed support paramedics and Dublin Fire Brigade paramedics and transferred to Connolly Hospital Blanchardstown. He was uh, pronounced dead at Connolly Memorial Hospital. The incident has been referred to the Garda Síochána Ombudsman Commission under Section 102 of the Garda Síochána Act 2005. They are investigating... And they're also investigating the uh, the lead-up to it. The post-mortem has already taken place. And uh, they would like to appeal for any person who was in the Eurospar, the post office, or the shopping centre at 12.15pm, uh, the 30th of December, or who were in the vicinity of Cherryfield and Mannersfield Estate, Dublin 15, between 12 midday and 12.35, and anyone who has video footage of those events to reach out to them. That is the basic gist of what happened here, according to the official uh, report of it. Yes. Um, just from the point of view of Joe Bloggs in the street, which is what I am, obviously there are lots of details, there's lots of information we don't know. Uh, oh, we, we should start with the most brutal fact that we know for certain. 
a 27-year-old human being is dead because he was shot by the police. And a family has lost a brother and a son. And that is, I would say just as a priori, axiomatically, a very sad thing. It is a tragedy that this should happen to this family and to this person. Now, whether after that, I don't know. Um, we, I know you and I have been sort of coming through the papers and looking to see what we can find. I have seen, for example, whether it makes a difference, and I think it probably does make a difference. For ex we know, or we're told that he was carrying a knife. I've seen the knife described variously, Gary, as a butter knife and a machete. Yes, I believe his brother said it was a butter knife and uh, other people said it was a machete. But I have also seen the brother say that um, they did not attempt to use le less lethal force options. Yeah. Which the guards are saying they did do. So it's a question of... An interesting point here is um, eyewitness accounts of any kind of traumatic event. They are incredibly unreliable. Yeah, I, I mean, it's almost... It's, it's almost come into the mythology of police for just watching enough police procedurals at this stage. We know that if somebody is... And people, and this is a, I think it's a weird thing. It's not that people are trying to lie or trying to come up with a particular story. They may be absolutely convinced uh, in good faith that what they're saying is what they saw and this is the truth. And they can be wildly off. But any instance of something which is incredibly stressful or highly traumatic or causes massive adrenaline spikes can lead to uh, oddities involving memory. And yeah, it's, it's not that they're trying to lie. They legitimately believe it in a certain way. Now, I'm not saying that the brother is mistaken here, but what I am saying is that eyewitness accounts, whether they be from the Gardaí or whether they be from anyone else there, you should really seek uh, cooperation of them before assuming they are correct yeah. on both sides, which is something that the investigation... We'll um we'll look into. No, it's reported in in the press, and I, it has been reported for a while. And it hasn't been changed, so we'll go on the basis that the first incident, uh, the alarm was raised uh, after the threats were issued towards staff at the Harkins Town Shopping Centre. Now, just to contextualise it: a male staff member is reported that he suffered a broken nose and jaw. That's a, that's fairly that's not insignificant violence, Gary. Yeah, there were there were claims that uh, George and I'm not calling him George out of familiarity. I'm calling him George because I'm pretty sure I'm incorrectly pronouncing his second name. Uh, yeah, that George had gone to the spar, had assaulted uh, one of the staff members, and had then pulled a knife on him. Now there were claims that he had slashed one of the staff members. But from what we've seen reported, there were facial injuries, but it looks like they were not um they were not caused by a knife. There weren't there weren't lacerations caused by a knife or or a blade. No, and I think that that's the thing. There has been a lot of claims made here. There have been a lot of claims about the character of George particularly and statements that he had, you know, upwards of thirty previous criminal convictions for various things. Yes. But when I've looked into it, I haven't been able to confirm any of that. Yeah, my my Similar kind of experience when I people have been sending me links saying, "Oh well, he 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 was out on bail for this, or he was convicted for that." And when I follow the various links around, they all seem you know those circles of confirmation where somebody takes it from someone's link from someone from someone's feed and then to another feed, and it all just confirms itself. But it's it, it's very hard to find an initial story in a reputable source. Now you can say, "Ah, well, that's from there, and that's confirmed." So there's an awful lot of brouhaha. 
initially we there were reports suggesting that he was uh unstable or going through some kind of a of a, psych, a psychotic episode or that he was uh, psychiatric he was a psychiatric case and so that seems to disappear there's there's inevitably in a situation like this has got all sorts of noise and bruja and rumors the guardi are sticking solidly that they say that they did use what they call an escalated approach uh they first of all attempted to restrain him using pepper spray pepper spray then on two separate two separate two separate occasions he was tasered and that failed now certainly if you are a friend of this man if you're a family member of this man if you're part of this man's community you could look at this thing and you say these guys had guns there were lots of them he had a knife why was it necessary to kill him i think it's a reasonable question to ask but there are also these and presumably the report will address that issue but if you come at a policeman particularly if you're coming at a, if and if this if this report is accurate that you come at a policeman and you have a knife and that knife is capable of harming the policeman and there's going to be an the, the outcome is going to it's going to be a bad one if you go after an armed police unit in this country or any other country and you have a knife they're going to shoot so i suppose there's two dimensions to this there's the shooting itself and yeah. there is the reaction to the shooting and the sort of pure it's it's um it's caused and i think we'll, we'll go through through both of them Starting with the actual, I think, technicalities of the shooting itself. There were a lot of comparisons to the way the American police force would respond to something like this compared to the Irish uh, police. I think it would be enough to say that the Irish police are not the American police. And an important thing to note when we talk about American police is America is a country of hundreds of millions of people. There are police precincts in America which are absolutely world class in how they deal with people. And there are police precincts in America that you would not want to be involved with in any capacity. And there are tens of thousands of separately organised police forces. There are federal-level police forces, state-level, city-level, town-levels. There are counties, there are town sheriffs. They're all, and they're all acting on within their own jurisdictions or their, under their own direction with their own levels of training. And the training, we talked about this before. Peter Moskos is the guy I've referenced to what, He's a well-known uh, police uh, expert in John Jay College in the United States. He talks about this, the levels of training, for example, between Louisiana, uh, California, New York. New York police, uh, for someone who was brought up on you know crime dramas like Kojak in the 70s in New York, you may discover the New York discharge, New York uh, police officers discharge their weapon less than, I think, any other major city in the United States. Now, that wasn't always the case, but they are also considered to be much more highly trained, much better at dealing with situations than in other places. So different different approaches will produce different outcomes, different training will produce different outcomes. Now, the Gardaí Armed Support Unit are trained in a way that ordinary Gardaí would not be. The Irish police have a very different record. They have historically been highly unwilling to uh, shoot. I think I was trying to pull the exact numbers from this, and there's it's, it's a bit awkward because Irish statistics are always terrible to try and find. But I know in 2005, in the previous 15 years, I think eight people had been shot and killed by guards, and in every one of those instances in which I could find enough data on, 
the person they had shot had been armed. I couldn't find an instance of the guards shooting an unarmed person. Now, that did also include the death of John Carthy. Yes. Now, Carthy was, um, he had a history of psychiatric illnesses, and the ERU shot him dead in 2000 after it was like a 20 or 30 hour siege at his home. And that led to, to an inquiry, and um, it, uh, it kind of went off the rails. It was an odd case in that there were a lot of apologies for it, but. When the actual inquiries came out, I, I don't recall the inquiries actually saying that they had done anything terribly wrong. To my memory, there were two. There may have been two separate inquiries, maybe at a, at a distance in time. One was more critical of the Guardian than the other. They tried to set up a subcommittee to look into it. High Court ended up finding that subcommittee unconstitutional, and it went to the um, it went to the Supreme Court. But there was there was one. It was the Bar Report, actually. That was it. The bar, sorry, the Bar Tribunal. That was that was not uh, terribly positive towards the police, but the Garley inquiry and an FBI inquiry were were um, quite positive towards it. The only actual the only point that they actually brought forward the FBI one was that um, the ERU should have shot him earlier, and that by um, allowing him the instance to go on longer and allowing him to move more, they'd increased the odds of um, a civilian or a member of the police force being killed. That was an interesting one as well, because it was something that's come up a lot in um, in relation to this one, where people have said, some people have said 12 guards were there, some people were saying there were 15 guards there, I saw someone claim there were 30. Mm. The guards themselves haven't released the exact number. Now, there is a video available of the uh, incident, although it only captures the end of it, and it's sort of unfortunately timed in that if it had, if it had started a few seconds beforehand... It would just give a, a broader picture. But people were saying, there's so many guards. Why couldn't they, you know, they disarm him? Or why couldn't they shoot him in the leg? Now, the shooting in the leg thing is sort of a, a misunderstanding of what it means for a police officer to uh, shoot you in the first place. But and it generally doesn't happen and largely actually shouldn't happen. But they did try and do it in the John Carthy case. They shot him. I think they shot him three times in the legs. And he just ignored them. It's, it seems incredible. And yet, when you when you look into the literature of this, a literature of this, it's actually pretty normal for people in. The thing to remember is adrenaline dulls pain substantially, and I don't think people really understand what it takes to kill someone, what it actually takes to put someone down with a gun. Because there's generally two ways that you can do it. You can put someone down through blood loss and shock. Or you can put someone down through a disruption to the central nervous system. Mm -hmm. So if you shoot someone in the legs and you don't hit an artery, it will be incredibly painful. But it won't stop them. And when you actually look into it, there are many, many cases of people taking quite a number of shots to the extremities and just keeping going. And when you start looking into people who are using particular stimulant drugs, you start running into instances of people taking many, many shots to the center of mass and just keeping going. But apparently no issue. Yeah, again, because of the video and the timing and the quality of it, it's not clear what if there were other people in the vicinity. If there were, if it was possible that while he may have been directly threatening Gardy, if there were other, if there was, shall we say, other civilians nearby or present that the Gardy may have felt were also potentially in danger uh, we don't know that there's a there's an enormous amount that we don't know and we won't know what well, some of it we will never know but uh, there will be an investigation the first thing to say is 
we don't, in a situation like that, we have to, I think, work on the assumption that the Irish judicial system takes very seriously the idea of guardy shooting civilians. This is not, as I think the point you're making, Gary, is this is very, very far from commonplace. This is a very strange thing to happen in Ireland. This is not something we take lightly. It's not something the Gardaí will take lightly. It's not something the investigators will take lightly. A very a thorough investigation will be done. The facts will be verified insofar as they can be, and a, and a judgment will be arrived at. After that, the legal system is, of, is, is, is available, both the criminal system and the civil system, that people can use to pursue a case further if, they're not, if, if there are issues they have with those things. There are mechanisms to deal with this. If we want to sort of move slightly on to the reaction to it. I, 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 we will in a second, but I, I actually just want to yeah. slightly talk more about this and about why, if they shoot, they're going to try to shoot to kill. Because I think if if it's entirely possible to shoot someone to wound, and that is in fact the preferred way of doing it, it's a lot easier for this to become a particular sort of thing. It is also important to point that this is the first time I'm aware of the police killing someone who isn't white uh, when they had a gun. Yes, yes. So there, there is all of this kind of talk about shooting the extremities and things like that to wound, but that's not what guns are generally considered for. Guns are designed to deliver lethal force, and police across the world are trained that at the point you pull a gun on a suspect you should be willing to deliver lethal force. And that, I think, is the is the primary criticism of a lot of the American forces that we've seen, that they're far too quick to draw a gun, which indicates mm-hmm. that they are willing to engage in lethal force. There should never be a situation where you should pull a gun and then tase someone. If you pull a gun, you've moved by that point. You have moved to a situation where you have decided that lethal force is necessary. When you... Another thing, we were talking about the impact of adrenaline on memory and on pain. Interesting thing about adrenaline, it also, it will, it has a load of advantages to it in any sort of combat situation, but one of the things it's not terribly positive towards is fine motor control. Yes. And so when you actually look at the, now I wasn't able to find any detail from Ireland, but when you look at the international evidence on how accurate are police at shooting suspects who are armed, well, the answer is not is not very yes, and that's that's certainly the truth. That's one of the things that consi- constantly comes up in the United States. That if you compare the number of times uh, a, a weapon is discharged, as opposed to the number of times, uh, uh, shall we say, a target is hit, there is a significant disparity. A lot of them, this it's not that they 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 hit an extremity by accident. They just don't hit the the the, the individual at all. From the data I can find, around sort of twenty five percent would be decent. Would be kind of standard. If you can get to fifty percent, which is half of your shots actually hitting, you are doing fantastically. I mean, police forces that have invested immense time and specialized training programs have kind of hit around that mark. You don't tend to get much higher than that unless you're dealing with particular situations. Just, I mean, without becoming excessively kind of macabrely nerdy about this, it's worth pointing out as well that there's a very significant difference in accuracy between using, say, uh, a revolver and a rifle with a scope uh, from a a seated 
from a, a, from a, a stable position. If you're a police officer on the move holding a, a, hand, a handgun, they're far less accurate and far less likely to be accurate than somebody with somebody a trained a trained arms officer in a prone position with a rifle. Yeah, there's a load of stuff they'll go into, and I actually don't, I don't know enough about the the armed response units training uh, to kind of go into where where I think their accuracy should fall. So you take that fact, you take the fact that guns, when you guns are generally considered an instrument of lethal force, and that will explain why you will often see if someone is shot, they're not just going to be shot once or twice. Someone can end up getting shot twenty times. And that's a policy which is not a policy specific to here or to the United States or a handful of places, but that's pretty. That's a that's a global global attitude. Yeah. Once once you shoot, and for a rather gross reason, as you said, it's for a simple question of accuracy. Also, they aim for the largest part of the body. They aim for the piece between between the stomach and the torso. That's where they're going. It's from. also it's it's the quick. It's it's a large area. It's quick to aim at, and also extremities move a lot. Yeah. So they're just rather difficult to hit. So those figures, when you're looking at like 25% hitting, they would all be people aiming center of mass. If you were to try and aim at extremities, you would go, it would go very, very badly. Now, so I think the, the, the thing with that policy is it can look very tasteless when someone will end up being shot 10 times and they'll say, was that really necessary? And I would say the policy of just, sh- if you shoot, keep shooting until they're, you know, they are down, they're neutralized, isn't the problem. The problem is, when is the decision made to shoot? And if you can fix that one, well, if they get shot 40 times, it doesn't matter, as long as the decision was made at the appropriate time. But I did see people complaining about the, the amount of times he was shot, although he wasn't shot. He was shot three times, fired five rounds, shot three. Right. But on the on the whether or not the shooting itself was justified, we can't tell. There will be a full investigation of this. But we do know the sort of times when the guards will decide to fire. It will be when they decide that someone is a threat, a serious threat to the life of others. And so if George had a knife and he was walking into a house and he had a history of threatening people and his brother has said he had mental issues, but no one has clarified what those issues are or how they impacted on his behavior, then there might be a time where they decided, okay, we cannot let him go any further with this. This has to end now. Now, the video that exists does show him lunging at one of the police officers. Um, You can't make out there's anything in his hand. It seems sensible to assume if he had a knife that the knife is in his hand. But it's also, I can't tell when I watch it if one of the shots came before he lunged at him or after. Again, it's not my job to do so. That'll be a matter for the investigation. But I think the video is just slightly below the clarity at which I would feel comfortable looking at it and going, this is clearly what happened. This led to this. Um, I don't know. I don't know if you have any different thoughts on it, Michael. No, no, no. I, I, that's I, 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 that's exactly this. I, I pretty well my my take on it. Also, yeah. I will. I, I have found the the points on mental health to be slightly distasteful. Not from the family as such, but I've seen people saying that um, because he had mental health issues, then you know it was absolutely unjustified to shoot him. Which I think has two parts. One, it implies that people with mental health difficulties can randomly become violent yes that and that's a, that that's not a, that's not an insignificant point because that is a historical stigma uh, attached to mental health the idea that anybody with any kind of mental uh, illness is like when we know 
that only a tiny fraction of people who have mental health issues do become violent. And there are only a very small number of mental illnesses that are likely to provoke people to violence. Yeah, I mean, there are instances where people who, let's say, have schizoid personality issues may become um, may become violent, but it's not it's not the you know the order of the day, as it were. It's it's relatively rare for people with mental health issues to become violent, and they tend to be severe mental health issues. And they're far more likely to be violent towards themselves than they are to be towards other people. That I think is also an important point. It is usually directed to themselves. So that that I find a bit distasteful because it seems to be sort of going that you know mental illness is is just violence and I I don't think that's true at all. And the other part is it's sort of infantilizing towards those who have mental health issues because there are many many people who have mental health issues of all types and stripes and some can be legitimately debilitating and require uh, counsel or pharmaceutical aids, or long-term residential psychiatric uh, treatment. But not all of them. And I would say not most of them. And there is this little bit of, you know, if you have a mental health issue, well, then you're not responsible for your actions. And I find that a little bit infantilizing, frankly. Denying agency to a hell of a lot of people who have mental health issues that do have agencies and who regularly struggle with their lives and struggle to make decisions that may be very, again, I would say the vast majority of negative impacts that occur as a result of people with making poor decisions in mental health impact on themselves, not on other people. Uh, it's just, it's, it's a community, if, if it's not even a community of people because they're too disparate, but it's a population that in general I would say we should be trying to increase the agency of and increase the feeling of agency in as many areas as po- uh, possible and not just randomly making statements that. You kind of imply that any one of them could just snap any day and we've got to be ready for it. These ticking time bombs walking amongst us. Mm. Yeah, I just, I, I don't think that's helpful. But that's the reaction to this has on many levels been pretty distasteful. And I know that's what you really want to talk about and not the technicalities of whether or not. Well, I, 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 I do because there is one thing which I find, as we've talked about this before in the context of George Floyd and others and the, re- the reaction that we've seen here. Whatever problems Ireland has regarding race and whatever problem Ireland has regarding specific ethnicities in specific parts of the country, whatever tensions that there may exist, this is not the United States. We do not have the historical, emotional baggage and scarring that the United States has. We don't have the history of systematic, institutional, legalized racism. If we take, these are the phrases, Gary, that are thrown out, institutionally racist, systemically racist, rather. Institutional racism means means something. But it, it means that you have institutions within the state which actively collude at racist practices and racist behaviors towards people within the society. That means legalized racism. That is not the case in Ireland. In fact, we have significant legal protections which guarantee the rights and the privileges of citizens and non-citizens alike that they will not be treated or mistreated because of their race or their ethnicity or their religion or their sexual orientation or their gender, etc. Ireland is not institutionally racist. Systemic racism is again something which is bandied around which believes that Built into systems, there are racist attitudes and presumptions which make 
people within those systems and within those institutions behave in racist ways? That's a different question. Are there racists in Ireland? I'm sure there are. I'm certain there are. Does that Has that produced a country which is perniciously, poisonously, systemically racist? I do not believe that that is the case. And if that, if someone wants to make that case to me, then I, I, want, I want to see empirical evidence and data suggests that. But my fundamental concern is the responses that we have seen to the problems of historical race and justice in the United States have not produced happy outcomes in the United States. The particular problems that that country has had are not being responded to, dealt with, healed by the responses, shall we say, of BLM et al. And for politicians and community leaders to think that it is wise or appropriate to import the same rhetoric, the same, the same assumptions, the same attitudes that we see in the United States in response to, the, say, the death of George Floyd, George Floyd and, and others into, into Ireland, I think is poisonous, actually poisonous and dangerous and carries with the potential to create a nasty, possibly racist backlash within people, within the population. Now, I, I actually have a higher opinion of the Irish people and that I don't think that will happen. But I think there is always a danger of that happening. When you start to lecture people and tell people they are bad in ways that they are not, when you tell people they are wicked when they are not, when you tell them that they are privileged when their lived, their lived experience, as that phrase will commonly used today, is when they that is not their lived experience, they are not privileged people, then you can't expect that they're going to passively sit there and nod and say, yes, this is the case. We do not carry that same collective guilt that the United States carries. And we should be happy about that because it's a horrible guilt. It's a horrible sin that, they, that the United States has to deal with. We do not need racialized politics of an American stripe in this country. And politicians who are doing this, if they're doing it in good faith, should think very carefully and, co and slowly about what they're doing. I suspect that some people are not doing this in good faith. I think they're doing it possibly simply because they see an opportunity. This is a type of politics. This is a politics of division, a politics of sectarian, a politics of attack and I think it's and disunion and it's really really nasty and dangerous and wrong and it will do nothing nothing to advance if you wanted to use bland bland statements like racial harmony or integration in this country it's also rather pathetic when prominent politicians of the left tweet out support for Black Lives Matter and then decide that maybe that tweet wasn't suitable. Ah, Aidan O'Riordan, yes. Does that mean that Black Lives don't matter or they still matter, but only in instances in which the public seem to agree with you? Well, you see, that's a question you might well ask. I, 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 it was craven. I mean, for God's sake, leave it up. If that's what you feel, leave it up. Say it. I mean, there... why, why, why delete it? I did see there, there were some quite spectacular responses from politicians, but I just I wanted to mention one thing just because it came from someone I would have expected uh, better from. So Vicky Conway, Professor Vicky Conway, is a name I would imagine most people aren't aware of, 
But uh, Vicky Conway is a, a professor at DCU. Her specialty is policing. She is, or was, she might have just finished up her term, a member of the Policing Authority. And she was. Uh, she retweeted from Twitter the brother, uh, George's brother, Rahim. Uh, a tweet he had put up that said, Today the Garda murdered my mentally ill brother in front of my eyes with no remorse. They didn't even try to detain him, they just used brute force. Then identify him as a thug and people stand here and tell me black lives matter. I will not rest until justice is served. Now, I just don't think someone who sits on the uh, policing authority should be tweeting out that the Garda's murdered someone. Um, can I ask, maybe if you can remember me, you don't remember... At what page, what stage in this story, what chronology was did was, did you do that? This was the thirtieth, so that would have been Wednesday. Well, actually, if you done it today, it would still still be wrong. My point is, we again talked about this before. The rush to make judgments about situations that are obviously unclear and complex is really, really unhelpful. I mean, unhelpful is just pathetically weak way of putting it how how many times does this ha- does it something have to happen that t- before people learn you know what lads let's stay off the streets let's stay off twitter let's stay off social media and let's find out first what the facts are before we commit ourselves to a particular narrative particularly when by commit by getting a group of people to commit to a narrative we build that narrative and we make it true for many many people because most of, the, most of the people who are paying attention to this story, Gary, are paying attention now. They won't be paying attention in a month's time. And, in, and whenever this report is, is published in three weeks, three, well, three months, or a year's time, or whenever it is, most of these people will not be paying attention. To the extent that they understand what happened, their understanding will be formed in the space of the week after the event. Because that's when people are paying attention. And afterwards, they'll just know, oh, the guards murdered that chap who was mentally ill. And that, that will be what's established in the consciousness. And that will inform their way of looking at the society and looking at the Gardaí and looking at Irish, the Irish state. Yeah, I mean, I, and you, I mean, you've seen the same sort of thing from other academics. like Members of the Irish Human Rights and Equality Commission have tweeted out similar things. And, yeah, it's... There's a lot of people bringing up lines about how racial bias can influence our reactions and that that could have led to this death because these people were subconsciously uh, racist and it's being it's being brought up as a question but it's sort of, you know the old line that uh, if someone asks you when you stopped beating your wife they don't actually yes. like it's not an honest question they just want to i get that sense from it that this isn't a sort of you know we must have an objective look at this this is a there is this and we must find it which is a bit yeah. of a problem for them, because the guards don't generally shoot black people, which is, I imagine, makes this a lot more difficult for them. The guards, generally speaking, don't shoot people. I think, like, we were talking about Aidan O'Reardon and why he deleted his tweet. I think that might be partially due to the public reaction to this has not been, it's been pretty split. You have on one side the people who believe there can never be any justifiable reason to shoot a black man, and then on the other side, you seem to have pretty much everyone else. <laughs> We're not saying right, that this yeah. was the right thing to happen, but either seem to be going, well, he had a knife, or we'll let the investigation go through, and then we'll decide what happens. It has been great fun for racists on both sides, though, because you've got the people who say that, obviously, he deserved to be shot because he was black, and 
anything that happens to a black man you know, must be justifiable. And on the other side, you have the people saying that nothing that happens to a black man and any police violence against them must be, uh, cannot be justified because they're black. And both of those people are racists and you shouldn't engage with either. Yeah, there, there, there is, it would seem from some of the commentary, an a priori assumption that if you're a policeman, irrespective of where you are a policeman, you must be a racist. And if you're a policeman and therefore a racist and you shoot a black man well, let's face it, you know, come on. I mean, common sense kind of tells us, obviously, there was a racial element to this shooting. You know, there must be, mustn't there? It's, it's wonderfully unfalsifiable as well. There's no way for the guards to prove that they're not a racist organisation. And the fact that you would then have to, if you tried to, and you started spending time on it, that could be in, if in itself taken as proof that you are a racist organisation, because why else would you be spending so much time trying to root out racism? Unless, of course, you paid some people thousands and thousands of pounds to do anti, uh, to do implicit bias training, for example. Yeah, I, I don't know if you've seen the, the thing starting to go around, and it's, it's a statement, it's, it's just a graphic that's been going around, it's the um, the people, the activists who are agitating on this at the minute. And it's mental health requires support, not bullets. <sighs> even if they are right, even if he was having some sort of horrible breakdown, if he has a knife, and let's say that he did swing for the police and they were in fear for his life, well, does that make any difference as to how they should respond? If it is a case of, okay, well, there is now a high likelihood that someone dies here. There may we we going back to what we said before the, the beginning of this. There may be legitimate questions that we can ask about how you should deal with somebody in this situation. Are there other non-lethal approaches that could be used to bring somebody down safely without putting other 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 citizens or members of the guardi at risk? And if there are. Could if there aren't, could we develop approaches? Are there other, are there other jurisdictions where these kinds of approaches are used that we could copy? These are all legitimate, reasonable questions. However, those systems, to my knowledge, don't exist. To the extent that they could use lower levels of violence to try and contain the situation, they did. But listen, rather than come to any conclusions, because and and. Make a, make a nonsense of what I said before, I would say, we need to find, we need to wait. And most of all, I suppose, other than my point about the importation of a pernicious and poisonous form of racial politics into the country, which we do not need, can we not just take the lesson from, oh, from the, well, what were they called, the, the, the schoolboys in Washington? Oh, the Covington. The Covington boys. Can we not take a lesson from the Covington boys? Can we not take a lesson, indeed, from from George Floyd and and the, and the video there? Can we not take a lesson from the sh the the shootings uh, afterwards in in Milwaukee? Can we not realize that just because we somebody says something on Twitter and somebody posts a photograph or a piece of video on Twitter that that is now the story? We know everything, we understand everything, and we're now in a position to make definitive comments and to condemn and to blame. We don't know. And any reasonable person would know. Anybody who any knowledge of the Guardi, unless we're talking about a psychopath, and I would hope that there are not that many psychopaths in the Guardi. Uh, I'm sure they take some kind of psychometric testing when they, they're in Templemore to try and 
weed out the psychopaths if they don't maybe they should i'm the person or the the people who, who were involved in this shooting will not i cannot imagine it will have done so blithely or carelessly this is not a we're we're not in Venezuela. In Venezuela, something like 40,000 civilians are killed by the police in a year. This is a country where the police are, generally speaking, unarmed. And it's one of the things that the police take a great deal of pride in in this country, that we are an, it's an unarmed police force. These officers are there. They are Irish guards. I find it hard to imagine that this is not the kind of decision that will be very difficult for them. And they themselves... I mean, this is again a standard thing across the world. They themselves would probably need some kind of psychiatric or psych or psychotherapeutic uh, support because they've taken a man's life. Even if that man, it turns out, did represent a, a, a real and present threat to either themselves or to other citizens, they've still taken a man's life and that's a terrible thing for them to have to deal with. And they will probably have to have some kind of uh, supports because of that. Yeah, most of the, the research onto that from the sort of shooter side of things from the the one who actually takes the life indicates a, a great deal of of, uh, of psychiatric help may be required in the sort of short to medium term although it tends to depend partially on the the person well massively on the person but partially on the in uh, the situation around them so if it is the case that it becomes clear to everyone that George represented an immediate threat to life. And so they took steps not to protect themselves, but to protect the people they were with. That would have the most sort of favorable psychological outcome over the long term. Just mm -hmm. because then it is, it is much easier to justify to oneself, which is the important thing. But no, it's, it's not a, it's not a small thing. And there are people in the guards who aren't great. There's corruption of various levels of the guards. There are definitely problems with the guards but we do not have a police force in which most people go to work looking forward to shooting someone. God, no. Nor do we have a police force that we are actively frightened of being shot. No, and this I, this I think is another thing about this reaction. People who are putting this forward as if this only happened because he was black and this is evidence of racial bias in the guards without any proof that that is true are going to have a negative impact on immigrant communities if they come to believe that that is true. Absolutely. Uh, if you listen to um, the, I, the, the, the talk, I, the interview I had with, with Professor Glenn Lowry, if you talk to, listen to what people like Glenn Lowry have said, John McWhorter, uh, Jason Riley, uh, Professor Coates, um, uh, the, that young professor that did that study from Harvard, uh, Fryer, uh, Professor Fryer, one of the things, one of the most pernicious things that is in the United States is because of a lack of faith and, and comfort, shall we say, ease of relationship with the police that exists within the black, that, that absence in the black community in the United States. It means that they have, they are, it is much more difficult for them as a community to be properly policed and protected. It is not good for any community not to feel comfortable and at ease with the police force that is policing them. And it's unsafe for them. And it does feed back into the American uh, example. You do not want to create a situation in which either the community or the police force 
looks at each other and classes one group as us and one group as them. Because when you start seeing that, you see decreased levels of trust, you see increased willingness to use violence going both ways, and increased feelings of justification in that violence. And it's it's one of the real acidic effects that identity politics has had. Yeah, by... and that decline in the trust also leads to a massive to decline in cooperation. And it's a simple cliche of, of, of policing in a democratic country. You can only police by consent. And the degree to which a community in an area withdraws its consent to be policed means that the degree to which that community can be safely policed and live in police in insecurity is decreased. Earlier in the year in America, because of the riots, there were massive changes in how police forces dealt with black communities. And at the time, people were saying that that is going to... You're going to start seeing sharp rises in crimes because of those, because the people who are most commonly arrested for crimes tend to come from the same population that is the most common victim of those crimes because people steal from people they know and they murder people they know. So when police started to pull out of black areas because it was said that there was too much violence towards young black males particularly, the expected example was that rates of crime in those areas, particularly murders, was going to dramatically increase. And have you seen the homicide rate in America this year, Michael? Yeah, I see the homicide rate in the United States. The national rate is one thing, but it's far more, it's even more dramatic when you look at it, if you break it down into areas, say, like New York, into Philadelphia, into specific uh, cities. The national uh, homicide rate in America went up 15% in the first six months of 2020. I mean, when you look at, there was a report looking at only major cities. That found during the summer months, uh, homicide rates went up 42% over what they were expected to be. And if you look, say, at, there was a period in New York uh, where there had been 100 murders that happened, which was over a period of time, which vastly increased over a parallel period of time, say, three, four years ago. And the point was made that every single one of those murders uh, was somebody from an ethnic minority, I think. Actually, almost of, of the of the hundred, I think ninety nine may have actually been African Americans who were victims of this violence. And it wasn't just big cities. When they expanded to look at, I think it was fifty or sixty of of, of uh, cities in America, some big, some small. They found that on average, homicides had gone up by thirty five percent relative to two thousand and nineteen. Now that is an incredible jump in a year. And COVID makes it more difficult, but it was, it was predicted that that would occur purely from the changes in policing and the increased feeling of antagonism between the police and certain aspects of minority uh, areas. And that was, that was, was it McWhorter who you were interviewing who was making that point? That uh, the changes in policing that were being sought by the Black Lives Matter movement had led to increases in homicide in the black community, were effectively killing more black people than they had uh, said they would save. It's also uh, worth re uh, repeating a point I think I made in a previous podcast that the work of, of uh, Ronald Fryer, who is one of the most brilliant young economists in the United States, happens to be an African-American. He's a, an economist in Harvard. And amongst he's done a lot of work on education, a lot of very interesting work on education. But he's also done work recently, the study which was published, a review was published in the New York Times 
which suggested that in the police forces where he had been embedded, particularly in Houston, but there were there were others, that actually when it came to the use of lethal violence, the incidents when you adjusted for police interactions, the in, that actually in the United States in those areas, the police were less likely, and actually substantially less likely, to use lethal violence against a black suspect than against a white suspect. They were more likely to use other kinds of violence, but hands-on, if you like. Uh, they were more likely to handcuff. They were more likely to lay their hands on. Uh, they were more likely to force a, a suspect to, to lie prone on the ground, that kind of thing, if the, if the suspect was, was, was black. But when it came to lethal violence, so again, the assumptions we have about the nature of police violence, even in the United States, may indeed be skewed. And even the numbers of people that are shot by the police in the United States are far, far lower. When you do surveys and you ask people, how many people do you think that were killed by the police in the United States? How many black men do you believe were killed last year? But the numbers that people give are way, 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 way higher than the actual numbers. But again, that's the United States and well, that's, that is a problem. It's their problem, not ours. Uh, but to import all of those assumptions and even e assumptions that don't even hold up in the United States and to import them here. We are kind of speaking of this and, and it might be taken that we think it is likely that the Gara the shooting will be found to be justified. Personally, from what I've seen, that would appear to be the likely outcome. I will not have, I do not have access to everything that the uh, investigation inquiry will have. So if it comes out it wasn't justified, it comes out it wasn't justified. And we have to be, I think, perfectly open to that. And if it wasn't, then there will be consequences. Absolutely. Both psychologically and professionally and possibly criminally. And that's, we have a system which will deal with this. We do not need to create an alternative system. And it's, it's understandable that people are going to react. But for community leaders and for professional politicians, to effectively stoke up this reaction, I think is, is beyond irresponsible. And I mean, there's been the stuff that is just obviously stoking racial tensions where there may be no need to do so. But then you also had stuff that was just kind of silly, like Ruth Coppinger came out and said that uh, it was extremely concerning that a young man uh, brandishing a knife but not armed otherwise is shot. And you sort of go... Well, arguably, the guard who shot him, apart from the gun, was also unarmed. Yes. And other than the shooting, used no violence. Like, silly stuff like that. Now, I mean, I do find it... Um, I, I'd be interested to see, if you were a guard and you saw, let's say, the tweet that Helen McEntee put up, how would you feel about it? He, where she said his death was a tragedy and she wanted to extend her sympathy to his family, friends, the community, and to all involved... But, uh, and then said, you know, about the investigation, but didn't say anything for the guards. If it subsequently turns out that the guards are justified in using force and that he presented a clear and present danger to the lives of the guards themselves, like, could it really have been that much more difficult to you know, include them in that in case it turns out that actually they were right to do what they did? Yeah, what happens if... What happens if, while we say the death was tragic, it was not a tragedy in that it inverted a tra another tragedy? Yeah, and I know it's it's a really minor thing, but she is the Minister for Justice. Well, that's not a minor thing. And I thought I thought Leo's comment was showing what everyone, uh, 
in in other ways you might criticize that it was in at least uh, more nuanced that it also referenced the Gardaí in and the effects that it might it, it potentially might have on them and the traumatic nature of the incident. But no, I thought McEntee's was rather too bald for someone in her, in her position. I just I wonder what that does to morale in the actual guards if they believe. Now the thing here about the investigation and stuff like that. If this wasn't justified, it's likely that the guards who were there know it wasn't justified. Yeah. Already. And morale is probably going to be pretty low. But if it was justified and it's being presented as this terrible thing that happened, on one level obviously it was terrible because someone lost their lives, and you're sort of going, yeah, but it needed to. It was, you know, what was I meant to do here? It might feel like you were totally unsupported. Particularly, if if we could put it in this way, it's particularly if you consider that from the point of view of the policeman that did this thing, he's there, this is the job you have given me to do. This is the training I have been given. These are the instructions. These are the rules under which I am operating. This is not something that I sought out. This is not something that I enjoyed. And this is something that I will have to live with. But I chose this as my avocation. I wanted to be a policeman. And part that my job is to protect the people of my community. And I have taken that job on. And I, you, you, have, you have given me that responsibility. And more than that responsibility, as, a, as a, a member of this particular group, I am sometimes going to be in a position where I'm going to have to make a decision that will end in the life, will end in the life being lost of a, of a, of a human being. And you are not even supporting, the, you're not, you're not recognising that, this is my job, and I have, and I have. This is what I have been given to do, and I have done it. I have done this very difficult thing that other people will would hate to have to do, would not do, but I had to do it. And this is the response. This is what I am being told in response. It is interesting to see the views of people about what should be done by trained professionals from people who, I mean, if you're not a guard or you haven't been involved in life or death or combat situations you're obviously a bit divorced from this and you can't give expertise in certain areas in the same way that someone who's gone through it can but at the same time there seem to be people who i wouldn't imagine these people have even thrown a punch and i think that is actually important because the great thing about fighting or boxing or things like that is they really show you that some stuff is just really difficult to do and it doesn't matter how hard you try, you can't do it. There does seem to be a tendency amongst people to just go, oh, well, you can just restrain people very easily. Like, I did jiu-jitsu for a good while. It is very hard to restrain someone who knows what they're doing and doesn't want to be restrained. Beyond that, there was this suggestion that, okay, well, it would be better if he had killed the guards, or some of the guards, and they'd restrained him, than that he died, because that is the guards' job. And I.e., I think there is... There is an element of truth in that, but not in the way I think they think it is. There is There are times when you can ask people like guards or firefighters or frontline staff to put their lives in danger, generally to protect the lives of others, given their position. Yes. It is not a situation where if someone starts swinging a knife at a guard, if that's what happened, that you should then lay down your life for that person. That, I think, is an entirely different scenario. You're not supposed to be a sacrificial lamb. No. 
not to lie down and say, well, do what, do with me what you will. No, but I think there, there are situations where you could expect someone in those positions to take action which will put their life at risk and it would be reasonable to do so. But allowing yourself to be shanked is not one of them. But listen, you're, I mean, okay, we, how seriously we should take these people, but exactly pretty well the position you're, you're taking, I saw being voiced on social media, whether that's, they should have, better that the guards should have been killed rather than this, this, this man. And one of this was being voiced by a prominent TCG student politician who is an abolitionist. Apparently there are these, we have in Ireland, I didn't realise it, we have defund the policers as well here, rather radical ones, because they actually believe the abolition of the police force. I have noticed this, and I have noticed these people popping up, and it doesn't seem to have gotten in popular discourse yet, but there are an increased amount of them who say we should remove the police force and we should replace them, or we should cut down on their funding, if not remove them totally. There is a degree of debate internally, there seems to be, about that. Abolitionists remove the police entirely and replace them with social workers and mental health workers. And Yeah, that that work. There are situations where that would be helpful. Absolutely. To have a mental health worker with the police or a mental health worker dealing with the situation. But it does seem to openly disregard the fact that, um, and this is not in relation to, to this case in particular, but there are certain people who are not mentally ill. They commit crimes and are violent, not because they are mentally ill or the victim of society, but because of who they are. Yes. And what do you do when you run into those people? And you don't need that many of them. I mean, the long-standing finding that most crimes are actually committed by a small cohort of criminals. It's always why I found it weird when people say that mandatory sentencing guidelines won't work, because just based on that fact, you would expect that they should, because they would take a large amount of those people away. But there are certain people who are not going to stop if you ask politely. And they're not going to stop because of your wonderfully progressive therapy sessions. And what do you do when you're dealing with them? Well, there's nothing you can. I mean, we know. Okay, we we know for internationally that there is something like a Pareto principle of working at work within criminality, as you say. There is a small cohort of people which is responsible for the large bulk of crime. We also know that most crimes, certainly of certain types, are committed by men aged somewhere between, say, 18 and 40. And the fact is that if you took all of the problematic 18 to 40-year-old men out of society and put them in prison, then you would actually you would radically improve crime statistics because something happens and after the age of 40 when people just get on, get old, they tend not to commit the, these kinds of crimes so much. Uh, that would probably involve building rather more prisons than we're willing to do and putting people in prison for longer than we are ready to do it's it, that's a fact of life these people exist and there's a, and within these populations we know that there's uh, there are i don't know if we do we still have psychopaths technically the term has been uh, retired or it was it was widely misused as was sociopath so they simply went to uh, different terms and we know these these are personalities for example if, if we're talking about you're talking about you know mental health issues uh, these are there have been a number of studies which have shown that Personality types like these tend to use psych, psych, psychotherapeutic interventions as ways of getting better 
at being who they are rather than actually change. Yeah, that was, that was the interesting finding that when they took a load of, uh, of people with particular personality types and gave them a lot of training and empathy and things like that, they just became better at manipulating people. It didn't make them any less likely to be who they were. There was one thing that would have made this immensely easier to solve, Michael, that we don't have in place, and that would be body cameras. Yes, that has been talked about, and it's interesting, actually, that I noticed quite a number of people advocating for body cameras, but people, uh, I don't know, maybe the police wouldn't be happy, but I, I thought it was curious, the people advocating, that I've seen advocating for the, the use of body cameras were people who were supportive of the Guardi. In other words, there was an assumption within this, this the pop, that pop, part of the population that the guards actually, generally speaking, are, when they do their job, they do it they do it the right way. I remember you and I talking about this maybe a year and a half ago when they they had been talking about body cameras and the uh, Garda Officers Union had come out and was very supportive of them. In fact, everyone was very supportive of them, apart from the NGOs. And do you remember the Irish Council for Civil Liberties came out and said that uh, body cameras That's, were invasive, yes. they were unnecessary. There was no evidence. They said there was no evidence. No evidence at all. And then they produced a paper which they said debunked all justifications for body cameras. I remember going through it and it was one of the worst written pieces of shit I've ever seen. Like even just the academic side of it was abysmal. I remember the paper because the only thing it reminded me of, do you remember the paper that was done on vaping? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That that knocked this one out as the worst written paper I'd ever seen. It was the the, the closest thing I could think of was the paper on vaping, which had six kids uh, asked which do they prefer cherry or bubblegum, basically, and that was definitive proof, which debunked something else. I can't, remember. but there was definitely debunking involved. Yeah, it was a fantastic piece of research because the guards had actually asked for this. They had asked the government to give them body cameras because one of the things that's interesting about body cameras is when they've been brought in, they actually bring down accusations of violence against police officers, as in members of the public accusing them of being violence, violent towards them, which would seem to indicate that claims of violence outpace actual instances of violence. Well, that doesn't surprise me at all because of, I, I, I was apparently unconnected thing, but there, there have always been disputes between punters and bookmakers, Gary, on course, where people will come up and they produce a ticket and they say, oh, I backed such and such a horse. Or then you say, well, I'm sorry, that ticket was on Black Beauty. It wasn't on Loch Ness. You say, no, no, I backed it. And I, I didn't have it. And you had a tenner. No, I had 50. And you had it at two to one. No, I had it at three to one. These these disputes happen. And one of these that bookmakers start, simply did was they started to install recorders and cameras on their stands. And do you know what? The, the number of people who were complaining about their tickets being wrong massively just dissolved. You know, what I did actually find quite funny about this is the ICCL said that they were opposed to it not just on privacy grounds. Can you remember the other grounds, Michael? Because they're good fun. Oh, God, go on. So they said it, it could breach the right to free association the right to free assembly, and the right to free expression. This would be the ICCL who is uh, deeply, deeply supportive of the bringing in of quite expansive hate speech laws. Actually, it's in what is an objectively tragic situation, it's some of the commentary that has been around it has made me smile in so far as I'm thinking, you know what? 
there is an example that would be definitely up for suspicion under a hate speech law. Quite a lot of hate speech going around Gary, but not in the direction that I think that those people who are framing the laws think it would it would be directed. No, although I will say I have seen claims that the George's brother has made certain statements um, effectively targeting the life of a Gardaí. Oh yeah, this is all over. I was saying this before that uh, I was told by several people that he that he was that he, um, he wanted him terminated and Finished. he wanted a con a contract taken out on him. When I listen to that video, I don't hear him saying he wants a contract taken out on him. I hear him saying he wants his contract terminated. Which is rather different. He wants him finished, which is a statement more to... Now, you can argue it's the targeting of a Gardaí, but I think given the circumstances, it's not an egregious one. And it is not calling for the death of a Gardaí. It is saying he wants a Gardaí sacked. Now, at the end of it, he does say, and this, what he says is... um. Something along the lines of, Garthi, when we find him, you know. It's some, some off-key statement like that, which can be read as threatening, particularly if people have previously told you just before that he called for the uh, killing of a guard. Yeah, I, I, I don't think it's helped either by the fact that for whatever reasons, the chant, no justice, no peace, seems to have just been too long and too tiring for the protesters in this case. And they've now just... Res- They've decided it's just easier to chant no peace. Yeah, and there have been videos of small amounts of violence, but it has been pretty contained. Now, the in general, it is a it is a protest during the COVID time, so take of that what you will. The worst video I think that's come out about the protesters has been there was a there was a video that was broadcast of the protesters standing in front of the shop in which George had, um, according to the guards, uh, assaulted someone and sent someone to hospital. Yes. Yeah. And the video from outside the shop was shown. And it's it's not that bad what was broadcast on media. But there is a video from inside the shop that was taken by people in it. And the shop shuttered itself when it saw the protest coming towards it. Because it's a large amount of angry people. Uh, yeah. And it seems reasonable. And so there's people from the video. You can see people who do not look happy to be effectively locked into a spare. And the shutter is down. So you can still kind of see what's happening outside. And it's just a large crowd of angry people randomly chanting uh, no peace. And then a voice th- saying that they, they wish those people would die and calling them white bastards. And you just look and you sort of go, you know, I don't think this is a, the route to a harmonious uh, racial relations, Mike. No. Also, did you also notice that a number of the people in the shop did not appear to be wearing masks? No, I didn't actually. First thing I noticed. you just become that used to them. Well, I I sit out I sit in I sit at my window every day and I take the names of people who walk by without masks or people who drive by without masks and I, I I've got I've got a list I'm I'm saving it up. I do think if you are interested in sort of pushing back against the more nationalistic right, particularly the more ethno nationalistic right, coming out strongly against things like that is probably in your interest. Because, yes, you can ignore it, which is what I think most media will do, but it's still going to get passed around. And all that happens is that means other people are talking about it, but not you. And then it looks odd that you're not talking about it, and uh, but everyone can see it. And it looks bad. It is undoubtedly racist. And as I say, it would be would put you in, in jeopardy of a prosecution. But instead we get all of these lovely sort of puff pieces of the protest that... 
I, I've noticed a number of reporters who covered the protest man it, when it on the first day managed to leave just before it became uh, a little bit more aggressive towards people. <laughs> it's handy, isn't it? Yeah, and you do sort of go, did you leave or did you just... Did you just close your notebook at that stage? But anyway, before we, we close up, I just want to uh, introduce a new sort of very fun game to the listenership, which I recommend you, you play whenever you're looking at the journal.ie. That often? Well, I look at every now and then. Yeah. I like to see how far they've gone. It's like seeing someone with a degenerative illness. Every now and then you like to pop your head in to see what's happening. And if it's turned into full-on necrosis. God, that's gruesome. But I, I found a new game. So whenever you go onto the journal.ie, we, the journal.ie over the past number of years, I think has become increasingly disgusted with its own commentariat, the people who leave comments under its articles, because there's lots of them who are quite progressive and lovely. But as the journal has become more and more politically aligned with the left and has become... I think its standards have become looser and looser in order to push those lines. They, I think, have grown increasingly unhappy with those with those commentators because so many of them are quite acerbically, not even right-wing, but like I would say a lot of them vote for Sinn Féin kind of thing. Just, you know, working class, no bullshit kind of people. Okay, yeah. And so what the journalists started to do over the last while is you can... You can tell if an article on the journal is political by whether or not they've just turned off the comments without mentioning that they've turned off the comments. <laughs> so you, you can just go through and you like... But what I found out is, is all journal articles actually just below the headline, they have how many views they have, but then they have how many comments. So if you just scroll down and you don't even need to read the headlines, you'll keep coming to ones that just go zero comments. And then I like to play the game of um, legal or political. Which is, is it about a court case which is currently running, in which case they will turn off the comments because they don't want any legal problems, or is it political? And Michael, it is is a whale of a good time (laughs) if you have nothing else to do and you're very interested in how bad the journal has gotten. I guarantee you, if COVID wasn't happening, this is not a game you would be playing. Probably not. Probably not. But there are some great ones, Michael. Okay, try me. I think there was one I, I, I think you mentioned before, which I thought was, was wonderful. Everything about it was, which was, if I can get it, I, want, I don't want to paraphrase because it's important to get the, the everything right. It was, I think, uh, no one is more expert in their healthcare needs than trans people. You were very close, Michael. It was, it was an article by Aoife Martin. There are few people as expert in their own healthcare as trans people are. We have to be zero comments. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder if they include that in their pitch to commentators who are going to do political things of just, don't worry, we'll turn off the comments. You won't have to see horrible people, horrid, horrid people say nasty things about you. And then there are ones where you're like, it's weird that they turned off the comments. Seven hours ago, former real IRA leader Michael McKevitt dies. Zero comments. Hmm. Hmm. Well, maybe they're using the old... Principal de mortis nil nisi bonum. Oh, I'm sure the journal is very concerned with that principle. <laughs> yeah. Ah, they're good fun. Anything to do with George and Ninchenko? Zero comments. Just anything to do with it. Well, you don't want the hype and I coming on and saying horrid things on your nice paper, do yeah, you? Yeah, you know, you put forward something like... I'm not sure. I I would imagine there is an opinion piece somewhere I haven't seen about the importance of racial justice in policing matters. But you don't want people turning up below that being like, 
But he had a knife. <laughs> no, no. That just ruins the ambiance of the year. Uh, ruins the ruins the ruins the feeling of the room. Well, that, yeah, dozens protest in Dublin after shooting of George Ninchenko. Zero comments. Dozens. Wow. I actually I quite like it because they used to like do it really sparingly, and now they're just like, "No, nah, bring the hammer down." It feels like they've gotten more confident in themselves, and I like to see that in a person. I like to see the growth. I love I love headlines that contain the word dozens. Dozens of protesters, because it sounds so much better than less than 30, doesn't it? You know, dozens, dozens. That's a very cynical approach to these matters. Anyway, I suppose we shall be back on Wednesday with more more of the hot-button topics that are keeping Ireland buzzing. If any of us are left alive and we're not all crowded into the ICU as the numbers climb ever closer to millions and millions, we should be back and we should be making comments on Wednesday. Until then, mind yourself, stay safe, stay at home, and wash your hands, for God's sake. All the best.